For more presentations like this, visit www.xenos.org. All right, we're going to be looking at Romans chapter 4, Defining Faith. And this is one of the real great chapters in the book of Romans. It highlights the father of faith in the Old Testament, Abraham. And Paul uses this figure as a way to argue to the Jewish Roman Christians that it's all about faith. And this is a theme that really runs throughout the book of Romans. But it's important for us to remember where we were last time. Remember in chapter 3, one of the main arguments Paul was making was that it's not by works, that there's no good thing that we can do to ever earn our way to God or to ever give us a right standing before God because, as he says, we all fall short of God's perfect standard. So he summarizes that section at the end of Romans 3 by saying, where then is boasting? It's excluded. On what principle? On that of observing the law. No, but on that of faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from observing the law. So he brings up a really good point. He says, if you can't earn your way to God based on good works, then where's the boasting? How can we claim that we're good people or that we're better than others? And so really when we come to a place where we realize that it's not about good works, but it's based on faith in what Jesus has done, then it levels the playing field. Now, you can imagine the Jewish Christians who are sitting here in Rome during Paul's day really bristling at this whole idea that it's not about good works because at this time, many of the Jewish people in Rome and really in the ancient world believe that you could actually earn your way to God based on rigorous and strict adherence to the Old Testament law. And one of the things that Paul argues is that if you look even at the Old Testament, it was never about the Old Testament law. It was never about earning your way to God based on works, but it was always by faith. But of course, he had to make his argument from the Old Testament. Because that's what would have given him credibility in his argument. So he begins in verse 1 by saying, What then shall we say that Abraham our forefather discovered, the, uh, discovered in this matter? If in fact Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. What does Scripture say? And he answers his own question. He says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. So he points to this Old Testament passage in Genesis 15, verse 6, where the author of this, of this book, Genesis, Moses says uh, that Abraham believed in God and that God counted this as righteousness. So a little bit of background, I think, is important for us to understand Paul's argument. You know, one of the things that God does early on in Genesis, he calls this guy Abraham who lives in the city of Ur. And he tells him in Genesis 12, verse 1 through 3, he says, 
Leave your native country, your relatives, your father's family, and go to the land that I show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you and make you famous, and you will be a blessing to others. So he goes to this guy and says, I want you to get up, I want you to uproot your family, and I want you to go that way. And I'm sure at some point he was like, all right, well, where, where are we going? Can you give me, like, a map on where, you know, you want me to head? And he's like, just go west. And can you imagine how much faith it would take to just take your family, who'd been living there probably for generations at this point, and to just follow God? And at one point, as Abraham was wandering in the wilderness, he started to feel probably some discouragement because years had passed. And God reaffirms this promise to Abraham in Genesis 15, verse 5 and 6. He says, Then the Lord took Abraham outside and he said, Look up into the sky. Count the stars if you even can. That's how many descendants you will have. And then he says, in verse 6, And Abraham believed the Lord, and the Lord counted him as righteous because of his faith. So apparently, when Abraham heard God's words, he believed at that point. And for God, that was good enough. He counted this. He he gave Abraham right standing because of his faith. So what what was Paul doing by looking back to this important event in Jewish history? What's the point that he's trying to make? Well, I think what he's trying to suggest here is that when, when most people during this time looked at Abraham, they regarded him as this incredible um, pinnacle of faith. You know, you look at some of these intertestamental books, um, the Apocrypha, which contains some of the writings that, that happened between the Old Testament and the New Testament, and you have statements like this. For example, in Jubilees 23, verse 10, this is not in the Bible, where they say Abraham was perfect in all his dealings with the Lord and gained favor by his righteousness throughout his life. So the Jewish people looked at guys like Abraham as an example of righteousness, that he was sort of the pattern for which they should try to live their lives because Abraham was righteous before God because of his good works. So what Paul's trying to argue here is that Abraham was not justified or made right before God based on good works. It was by faith. And it's been faith all along. I think to highlight how much faith Abraham had, you know, there was this account in Genesis 22 where 14 years after God fulfills his promise to Abraham, he gives him the son of the promise And he says, okay, what I want you to do now is I want you to go and sacrifice your son. And in ancient times, this was very common. Many of Israel's neighbors would offer human sacrifices to these local deities. So he says, I want you to go and take your son and a few others, and I want you to travel to this area called Moriah. And I want you to go to a mountain where I specify, and I want you to go and sacrifice your son. Can you imagine, you know, Abraham, who has his one and only son, who was conceived 
based on God's grace, his miraculous power, now having to take this son whom he loved and to then sacrifice him. And so they take this three-day-long journey. I'm sure that journey was just filled with silence and dread. And they finally get to the foothills of the mountain. And he says to his servants, me and my son are going to go up to offer a sacrifice, but we'll be back. And it's very interesting that the, the author of Genesis records that we will be back. And the author of Hebrews actually comments on this and says that Abraham must have realized that because of God's promise, which was unconditional in Genesis 15, that God would somehow either raise his son back from the dead or do something miraculous in order to fulfill his promise. And so, of course, as they ascend the mountain and finally Abraham ties up his son, gets ready to plunge the knife into his son, God stops him and says, I want you to offer this bull caught in a thicket instead. And so this bull acted as a substitute for his son, which becomes sort of a divine drama that unfolds in the life of Jesus Christ, where Jesus himself becomes the perfect sacrifice for us so that we don't have to pay the penalty of sin. So the Jewish people were looking at Abraham, and they they thought of him as this awesome picture of faith. And they believed that because Abraham was such a righteous person, because he had done so many good works, God was pleased with him. Well, Paul was trying to get his audience to see the chronology of events. He's trying to help them see, okay, which event took place first? These events like Mount Moriah where Abraham had great faith, Or was he made righteous before God earlier in Genesis chapter 15? He says in verse 3, what does Scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as as righteousness. This Greek word, logizomai, means it was a financial term that they used, which means to count or to reckon. Or in some cases, it means to credit to one's account. So what's interesting about this is that because of Abraham's faith, God counted or credited to his account a right standing. So Paul was saying, look, all of these other events, they happened after the fact. This is what gave him a right standing. It was faith. He says in verse 4, Now when a man works, his wages are not credited to him as a gift, but as an obligation. He uses this, illust- this analogy. He says, you know, imagine if you're working. When you earn your wage, it's not a gift. It's an obligation. Imagine you're a sandwich artist at Subway, right? A professional. And so let's say one day your boss calls you into the back room and you walk in there You know, he's got his feet propped up on the desk with a big smile on his face. He says, I got a surprise for you. And you say, well, what, you know, you're excited. You're like, well, what's that? He hands you this envelope. And, you know, it's, it's, it looks like one of those uh, cards that has like a gift card in it or something like that. And so he said, he smiles. He, He says, open it up. And you open it up 
and inside of the card is your paycheck. And he's like, you're welcome. You'd be like, okay, wait a second, all right? Uh, This isn't a gift. I work for this. You owe me this, right? And so likewise, what Paul's arguing here is that when you work for your right standing before God, then it's no longer a gift. It's something that you earn. And so he's saying here that, you know, it's either you try to work your way to God which as we argued in chapter three is impossible because no matter how many good works you, you do, it never erases the, guilty, uh, the, the guilt that we have. On the other hand, we can turn to God and ask for his forgiveness, his mercy, his grace. But in that case, we can't boast, we can't say that we earned this somehow. You know, really justification involves a double counting. On the one hand, God no longer counts your sins against you, but on the other hand, he credits or accounts to your your moral bank a right standing. Another way that Paul puts this is in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 19 and 21, where he says, God was not counting men's sins against them, but instead made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This really, I think, encapsulates the message of Christianity, that God sent his own son, Jesus, uh, a sinless man, to die in our place so that we might become the righteousness of God. In other words, Jesus died so that we can have a right standing. He says in verse 5, however, to the man who does not work but trusts God who justifies the wicked, his faith is credited as righteousness. I like how the NLT translates this verse. I think it kind of helps us understand it a little bit better. He says, but people are counted as righteous not because of their works but because of their faith in God who forgives sinners. So God does not Look to our works as a basis for saying, okay, you're a good person. You can make your way into heaven. Instead, he looks to our faith in God. So I think the first thing that Paul's arguing here is that biblical faith is not the same as works. It's, It's not about trying to earn your way to God. It's not about trying to Look at the Old Testament law and follow that to a T, hoping that God will accept you if you try your best. But it's throwing yourself on the mercy of God and trusting what he's done in Christ. He says in verse 9 and 10, is this blessedness only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? We've been saying that Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness. Under what circumstances was it credited? Was it after he was circumcised or before? It was not after, but before. So again, he makes another chronological argument here. And the reason why he's bringing up this idea of circumcision is because in Paul's day, people equated this act, this symbol of getting circumcised as somebody making it their obligation to take on the Old Testament law. So 
what a Jewish person in Paul's day would think is that there is no way that somebody could actually be a true believer and enter into heaven if they weren't circumcised. And yet Paul points out, he says, when you look at Abraham, when did he actually circumcise him and his whole family? It was 14 years after that event in Genesis 15, verse 6, when God credited to his account righteousness. And so he points out again, it's, it was always by faith. It was never by works. And so I think we can gather from this that faith is not the same as ritualism. You know, most people today, when they think of church, they think of a liturgy. They think about having to stand up and sit down. They think about responsorial psalms. They think about having to go through uh, this worship service. And yet, one of the things that God says is that it's not about ritual. It's, it's about having a personal relationship with me through faith. He says in verse 13 through 15, it was not through law that Abraham and his offspring received the promise that he would be heir of the world, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. For if those who live by the law are heirs, faith has no value and the promise is worthless because law brings wrath and where there's no law, there's no transgression. Okay, it's a little bit complicated what he's saying here. He says, first of all, it was not through the law that Abraham and his offspring received the promise, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. In other words, the mechanism by which we receive God's promise is faith. It's not our good works. And then he says in verse, uh, or, and one thing to point out here too, is that when you think again about the chronology of events, God's promise in Genesis 15 that happened 430 years before the law was even introduced, the Old Testament law, when God gave that to Moses. So again, Paul's pointing out here, he's like, look, the law wasn't even in place. So how could it be that Abraham was made right before God based on the law? It was based on faith. He says, if those who live by law are heirs, faith has no value and the promise is worthless. In other words, if you can live by the law and accomplish righteousness, then faith has no value. It's worthless. And he says that the law brings in wrath. In other words, when sin encounters the law, it becomes a trespass. And so where there is no law, there is no transgression or trespass. So the, the next thing he points out then really is that faith is not the same as law. It's not about adhering strictly to the Old Testament law. So I think we're sort of building this idea of what biblical faith is by thinking about the antithesis. But we want to answer this question, what is faith? First of all, we, we notice that biblical faith is not works. It's not ritualism. It's not following the law strictly. But you could probably add to this list as well. It's not the same as mental assent. You know, mental assent means when, when you believe something, but you only do so in an intellectual way. For example, if you heard me say, I believe in my wife, right? How would you, how would you interpret that? 
you wouldn't think he means he believes in his wife's existence, right? You know what I mean. It would be, I believe in my wife. I trust her. I have faith in her. And so likewise, when we talk about placing our faith in Jesus, we're not saying, I believe in him as a historical figure, or I believe that he existed. What we're saying is that we actually believe and trust in him and what he's done for us. So faith is not the same as just mental assent. It's also not the same thing as wishful thinking. You know, Mark Twain famously said, having faith is believing something you know ain't true. I think a lot of people view faith that way, that it's sort of like, despite the odds, despite the, the, the unlikelihood that this is actually true, I have faith in it. It's almost like blind faith, right? The way that people think of it. And yet, faith is not wishful thinking. It's not about trying to believe something even though there's really good reason to think it's, it's false. Biblical faith is actually based on truth. It's based on evidence, as we've seen in Romans chapter 1. That there's a solid foundation upon which we can place our trust in what God says in the Bible. It's also not the same as forceful thinking. You know, um, you hear people sometimes say, if you really believe something, that makes it true for you. And, you know, we live in a, a world today which is largely relativistic, where somebody might say, I believe in Eastern religion. Another might say, I believe in Christianity. And really what matters is that you have faith. It doesn't matter what faith you have. It matters that you have lots of faith. But, you know, it raises some of, the, some of these questions like, well, if the faith doesn't matter, then what about, you know, a white supremacist who thinks that uh, Islamic phobia is good and that they should go about burning down mosques? You know, you would look at something like that and say, well, that's not valid faith. Well, if faith is the only thing that matters, then... Why would we discount something like that that might seem odious to us? That's just your opinion. You know, the difference between our world's view of faith and biblical faith is that from the biblical standpoint, it really doesn't matter how much faith you have. It matters what you put your faith into. Another way to put it is it's not the amount of faith, but the object of your faith that matters. It's also not the same thing as positive thinking. You know, in, in athletics, there's this whole idea of visualization. You know, you go into a competition, you, you visualize yourself winning, or you visualize yourself performing. I was watching, like, the Olympics, and as, you know, the snowboarders are, are getting ready, they're, they're, they're doing all these things, they're, you know spinning their bodies and sort of like uh, visualizing mentally what they're going to do. And that's helpful. You know, some people, when they do public speaking, they visualize, you know, captivating the audience so that they can gather enough courage and confidence to be able to speak in front of a lot of people. Or you think about small business owners who think to themselves, if I just believe as, as much as I possibly can that I'm going to be successful, that I can will myself into that. And yet, the biblical idea 
of faith is not the same thing as positive thinking. It's not about trying to shape or distort reality to make it fit with what I actually believe. It's that we're taking our faith, our belief, and placing it in something that's actually true. That there's real evidence to believe what, we, what we've placed our faith in. It's also not the same thing as a feeling. Sometimes you might have an experience where you're like, uh, the presence of God is just everywhere. I've had that before, especially as a brand new Christian. You know, you're walking through a field and, you know, it's warm and sunny and you're like, oh, it's just, I feel like God is just giving me a big hug. You know, he's just everywhere. And then sometime later, you just feel like, God, where are you? I don't, I, you know, I haven't, I haven't had an experience with you in a while. And so we, we start to have all these doubts. So it's interesting how our faith fluctuates, or I mean, our feelings fluctuate, but biblical faith is not based on how we feel. It's based on the truth. In fact, in biblical faith, our feelings follow faith. For instance, God will make a promise, you know, in Matthew 16, verse 25, God makes this really provocative statement. He says, anyone who wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever decides that they are going to to lay down their lives for me will save it. So, you know, that really, I think, grates against what our culture thinks. Because in our culture, we're told what matters is that you take care of yourself first. Then you can worry about everybody else. So it's about you. You need, to, you need to take care of number one. And yet, when you look around our world today, people who hold that philosophy, that view, are often miserable, lonely. And so you have to wonder, is, does that work? And yet, there's, it seems like everything inside of us resists this idea of giving ourselves over to God or to other people especially if you feel really bad. It's like, I just need some me time. I need to stop worrying about everybody else. And yet when we decide that we are going to take a step of faith and trust what God says, where, you know, we walk into a home church and we're feeling terrible. We've had a long day at work or we got some bad news or we failed a test at school and we're sitting there, we're feeling bad about ourselves. And then we look over and we see somebody else who looks like they're feeling bad about themselves too. And you're like, "Mm, I'm going to go over here and not talk to that person. You know, I'm not going to even make eye contact because I know they're going to try to tractor beam, you know, tractor beam me into a conversation. You know, one way to look at it is, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to trust what God says. And even though I feel really bad right now, I'm going to step outside of myself And trust that when I serve other people and put others' needs first, that God is going to take care of me. I don't know how many times I've had an experience where I've walked into a home church or a meeting like this, feeling that way, and deciding, okay, I don't feel like investing in people, but I'm going to do it. And then walking out of that meeting feeling totally built up, excited, happy that I stepped outside of myself, And that that person that I was talking to was built up. And so when we place our faith in what God says, often our feelings follow afterward. 
Now, I think when we look at Abraham's life and his calling, it gives us an idea of what faith should look like. The author of Hebrews comments in Hebrews 11 verse 8 about Abraham's faith. He says, it was by faith that Abraham obeyed when God called him to leave home and to go to another land that God would give him as his inheritance. He went without knowing where he was going. So first of all, it was God's calling that prompted Abraham to have faith. So God spoke to Abraham. He spoke, called him out of Ur. And whenever God speaks, he speaks truthfully. So when he gave Abraham a promise, he was giving him his truth. So that's really the foundation. That's the starting point, is that God gives us his truth. He reveals his will for our lives. And then uh, we're told that Abraham went. So there was a response there. It wasn't just like he said, sounds good, God, and didn't do anything. Instead, he got up and he left Ur and then he started traveling west. So there was an action component to this as well, where Abraham decided to Take a step of faith when God spoke. And then finally, he did so without knowing where he was going. So there was this element of trust that he believed that God would actually take care of him, that he would come through on his promise. So we could really define faith as this. Biblical faith is a willingness to act based on God's truth while trusting in his promises. I think it's a pretty solid working definition for faith. I remember years ago when I was uh, getting my undergrad, I was uh, pursuing an engineering degree at first. And one of the things that you have to do is you have to take three uh, physics classes in order to just make the basic requirements. And I remember taking this class on kinematics, motion. And I walked into this lecture hall, which had, you know, hundreds of students. It was 8 o'clock in the morning. And I remember the, the professor vaguely saying something about gravity. And he was explaining, you know, gravity on a pendulum uh, exerts a downward force on the mass at the end of the string. And he says, he, said, he pointed out, you know, at the end of each cycle, the pendulum will lose energy such that it will eventually slow down to a, stop, to a halt. And, you know, it was like real early in the morning. It's one of the worst things that you can do in college is schedule a physics lecture at 8 a.m., right? So you look around the lecture hall, it looks like an oil field. You know, people are nodding off and, like, waking back up. <laughs> and at one point, he does this demonstration because it was like a three-story building. And from the, the top of this the roof, uh, descended this 20-pound bowling ball at the end of a, of a rope. And he said, look at this 20-pound bowling ball. And he picked it up, and he started walking it back to the corner of the classroom. You know, at this point, everybody perks up. They're like, what is going on here? And he uh, put his head into the corner of the, the lecture hall and put the bowling ball up to his chin, touching it. And with labored breath, he says, uh, based on the law of gravity, when I let go of this ball, it's going to swing to the other side of the room, but it's going to lose 
a little bit of energy such that when it swings back, it won't touch me. And so he lets go of this bowling ball. And it is screaming to the other side of the room until finally it hits the peak of its amplitude and stops. And then it starts to gain momentum back toward him. And there was an audible gasp in the room. And this thing is, is flying toward his face as his head is still, you know, just buried in the corner of the room. And it stops an inch in front of his face and swings backward. And um, as I was uh, walking home, I thought to myself, that is an incredible illustration of faith, right? Because on the one hand, uh, he did this on the basis of the law of gravity, but he believed it so much that he was willing to entrust his life to this law. And so likewise, you know, biblical faith is the same way where God lays down his truth, but then he calls upon us to take action, to trust that when he says something that he's going to actually come through. <clears throat> well, going back to Romans 4 and verse 18 and 19, Paul says, against all hope, Abraham and hope believed and so became the father of many nations. Just as it has been said to him, so shall your offspring be. Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old and Sarah's womb was also dead. So what Paul's pointing out here is that there was a waiting process. You know, God gave Abraham this promise in Genesis 15 when he was about 75 years old. And God did not deliver on his promise till Abraham was about 100 years old. And his wife Sarah was just a few years younger than him. Can you imagine how difficult that must have been? Day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, waiting on God to deliver on his promise? I don't know if you're anything like me, but impatience is something that causes me great consternation and pain. I hate waiting for things. And so God was having Abraham wait upon his promise. And I think, you know, for a lot of us, when we think about some of the struggles that we have, God promises that he's going to take care of us. And some of us feel this sense, like, when is God going to deliver, you know, a, a spouse that I can enjoy my life with? Or when is God going to deliver that career that's going to hopefully allow me to take care of a family. And so there's this waiting. And it's sometimes filled with doubt where we don't, we're not sure whether or not God is actually going to come through. But it also, when you look at Abraham's example, it doesn't suggest passivity. You know, we're told that he did his part in trying to conceive this son of the promise. You know, that must have been very difficult to have to, you know, engage in the unsavory task of having, trying to conceive at 100 years old. And, you know, Abraham, he had flashes of, of reality. You know, he would look in the mirror and he would look at his body and he's like, that thing's basically dead. <laughs> and then he would look at Sarah's womb and he'd be like, that thing's basically dead. <laughs> but, you know, he persisted 
trusting that God would come through. And, you know, faith isn't just sitting there and waiting for God to deliver. You know, God wants us to cooperate in this process. He promises that he's going to come through, but he also expects us to play our part as well. And so, miraculously, God delivers this son of the promise. And we're told in verse 20 through 22, he didn't waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. This is why it was credited to him as righteousness. So he didn't waver in unbelief, but regarded the promise of God as something that actually strengthened his faith. You know, one of the reasons why God made him wait was to build up his faith. You know, imagine if every time you ask God for something, he just delivered it the next day or within the hour. That wouldn't build your faith, right? But if you had to pray for something in earnest for weeks, months, years, and then you see God deliver that, that's an amazing thing. I mean, I, I've been keeping this, uh, ta- this daily prayer journal, I don't know, for maybe 10 years now. And um, occasionally I'll look back on, you know, stuff that I've written five years ago or however long. And just, just looking at some of the prayers that I was praying at that time, it's amazing. You know, practically everything that I wrote in there, God has answered. And it's incredibly faith-building. You know, when you think about your faith, it's kind of like, it's like a muscle. It requires putting a little bit of stress on it to make it grow. And so, in the same way, God will put stress on our faith. He'll bring things like suffering into our lives. He'll make us wait for certain things in order to build up our faith. Have you ever noticed that the people who possess the greatest amount of faith that you know are the people who've endured the most? That's not coincidental. God uses these events in our lives to build up our faith. Finally, he says, in verse 23 through 25, the words it was credited to him were written not for him alone, but for us also, to whom God will credit righteousness. For us who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead, he was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. You know, God wrote down this story in the Old Testament. He reiterated it through Paul, where Paul highlights it as a picture of faith. And he did all of that for you. He did that for me. So that he could credit to our account a right standing. You know, if you're here tonight and you don't know Jesus in a personal way, one of the things that God wants to tell you that you may have never heard before is that It's not about good works. It's simply by faith. There's nothing you could do to ever purchase what Jesus purchased for you. And the really great thing is that God is eager to credit this right standing to your account simply by placing your faith in him. In addition to that, this idea of faith also applies to spiritual growth as well. It's something that starts our faith, our our relationship with God, but it's something that continues to fuel the spiritual growth that we encounter. And we're going to talk more about that as we uh, look into Romans chapter 5. 
It's awesome that you don't require us to jump through a bunch of hoops in order to forge a relationship with you, but that you ask for something as simple as faith. And yet we also know that it's not that simple because it requires us laying down our pride and humbling ourselves before you. And uh, we pray, Lord, that if any, anyone here just, um, I guess, senses that you are real and that what Jesus did was actually real, that um, they would set aside their pride and, and in humility receive you through faith. And um, we thank you that that's all that you require from us. And we thank you, too, that even when we're faithless, you are faithful. And um, we pray that as we go through this amazing section in Romans, Romans 5 through 8, that you can um, really instruct us on what it looks like to grow with you spiritually. Pray for that in Jesus' name. Amen. This study was recorded at Xenos Christian Fellowship and is copyrighted. You may freely copy and distribute it as long as you keep it intact and do not sell it.